0: listener production This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And today, Keith, we are examining the potential global food crisis brought on by the war in Ukraine. And this is something you've recently talked about at an agricultural conference in the New South Wales Riverina. Let's start with the biggest concern here, and I guess it's about food security globally in the wake of the invasion. How are things looking at the moment?
1: It's a pretty disastrous situation. As you say, I was speaking at the Pasture Agronomy Service uh, conference in May, and that was at Wagga Wagga. And what, for me, is interesting is that we already had a, a global famine crisis. Um, it's not making much news here in Australia, but it is certainly a major crisis. So of the UN's membership of about two hundred, just under 200 countries, almost a quarter have got food security issues of one sort or another. And then on top of that, we've now got the war in Ukraine. If you want to summarise it in food terms, then the world's largest grain exporter has just invaded the world's fourth largest grain exporter. And the problem is that although sanctions have been imposed on Russia, they do not cover food. Putin has said we will not supply food to the international market. Remember, this is not UN sanctions on Putin. The, The UN has agreed that we need to have Russian food going into the international market, it is Putin retaliating and using food as a weapon by saying, I disagree with what the international community has done to me over my invasion of Ukraine. I'm going to punish people by withholding the supply of grain. So Russia is this major, once again, a major supplier. It's worth bearing in mind that Russia in imperial days, the Czarist days, was the world's largest grain exporter. Then in 1917, you get the Russian communist takeover and the Russians then destroy effectively the agricultural sector on ideological reasons by collectivising the privately owned farms. And the the food crisis, the grain crisis, continues in Russia. And in fact, in ni- the 1970s, Louis Heron, a journalist with the London Times, actually talked about who will feed Russia. Russia, because it makes money or made money, the Soviet Union made money for other reasons like gold, they used to buy up the world supply of food. And then you get the collapse of communism uh, 20 years ago, uh, sorry, 30 years ago now, and we get 30 years in which the farming sector goes back into private hands and in the year 2016, Russia returns to where it was in the year 1916 as the world's largest grain exporter. After 100 years, the farmers have got back to where they were a century earlier. And of course, in Ukraine, one of the reasons why there's this uh, hatred of Russia is what's called the Holodomir, uh, which was the, again, the Russians, the Soviets, imposing collectivized Agricultural practices on Ukraine, another producer of grain, and that caused huge famines and a massive loss of life in Ukraine. So, food as a weapon has been around in that part of the world for a hundred years, in one context or another. And now uh, we're moving into a world where, as the UN Secretary General said uh, a couple of weeks ago, we've got this major crisis now of a global famine looming.
0: Can you talk us through? Uh, What, in your eyes, have been the three big impacts on the global food supply from the Russian invasion?
1: So the the first impact is simply that they're not supplying food to the international market. So some countries uh, are particularly reliant upon that grain. So in the case of Egypt, for example, 80% of the population is fed by Russia or Ukraine. Uh, In Lebanon, again, it's a very high figure. If you cast your mind back, to the year 2010, 2011, the so-called Arab Spring. One of the reasons why that revolution was triggered was that, in fact, there was a shortage of food. They'd had a a series of bad harvests. They were having to import the food, but the price course went up. And it was a rebellion against that that you then get this so-called Arab Spring, which has been so turbulent in Middle Eastern politics. So food was clearly... Very important in politics then, and it remains important today just to keep people alive. So number one is the supply of food. The second one is the whole issue of fertiliser. And so Russia is a major supplier, as is Ukraine, or has been a major supplier of fertiliser to the international market. So you need that fertiliser in order to grow your own food. And then thirdly is the whole question of energy. Russia is a major supplier of energy, to the international market. Some of that energy in itself is then used in fertilizer. So they are major impacts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on it just briefly then. Could you explain a bit further the current carve up of the global food market? Who's exporting to who? Um, you know, are we seeing impacts here in Australia from this Ukrainian invasion?
1: Well, in regard to Australia, that's easy to answer. I think that we're now going to get new markets for Australian grain. Australia has a population of 26 million and we grow enough food to feed 60 million. So we actually have additional food. And in fact, we also are able to cultivate food in very difficult circumstances, such as the West Australian Grain Belt, which is kept going partly through the use of fertilisers. They boast that they can uh, get food to grow on a cereal packet. Uh, you know, just the cardboard. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, so Australia has done brilliantly in farming in this society. Now, of course, there are some that are saying, "Well, we're wrecking our soil." That's that's an important issue as well. I've been involved with the soil issue and campaigning and that sort of thing for some years. But what is interesting is that Australia is a major exporter, and there will be increased demand inevitably for Australian foodstuff, because we're a reliable supplier as well, uh, provided we have enough enough ships. That's another part of the COVID crisis and the, and the shipping crisis um, generated by the Ukrainian uh, conflict, that there may not be the, the sort of ships that are required. So if you look at um, where we are around the world, we have China is trying to feed 20% of the global population with only 7% of the world's farmlands. We produce enough food for 60 million people. We're the opposite of China.
0: Yeah, right. We just need to bring more people in or countries in to export too.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So poor old China um, has got a real problem. And in in China, when you greet somebody, instead of saying in English, you know, how do you do, how are you going, you say, have you eaten? Oh. So food is very important right, in Chinese culture. So China is not in a position to become self-sufficient for food production, and it is interesting that although China has made life difficult for the suppliers of red wine, Australian red wine into China, overall trade has increased between China and Australia because they want our coal and, and the iron. Um, so we're not completely in a trade war with China. Um, so China can't afford to cut off all trade with Australia. However, one has to acknowledge that the way that Australia treated the need for a, an inspection on why COVID began in China, very badly handled. We should have worked with the European Union rather than being outspoken in all of that matter. Um, so, But it is interesting that China has tried to punish Australia uh, by, for example, wrecking the red wine industry. But in fact, um, Australia has been able to bounce back from that problem, not so much with red wine, although we are looking for new markets for that. Penfolds um, is actually trying to make wine in China. In other words, keep the brand alive at a time when China is saying no more uh, Australian red wines. So for me, it's fascinating. China is going to be subject to major changes over the next few years. You've got excessive debt stagnant population growth. Remember, I, I keep using this phrase, China may grow old before it grows rich. And the, plus there's also the risk of a reaction against excessive wealth, that you've got a lot of ordinary Chinese who are not benefiting from the wealth that you see in Shanghai. If people go to Australia, from Australia to China, they often go to just Shanghai and Beijing. That's not all of China. That's just this thin eastern strip You've got the whole of that Middle Territory and then out far west, Xinjiang, Tibet, et cetera. The wealth is not trickling down there to ordinary people. Um, So it's going to be interesting with with China. And the other point that I made in the the talk in Wagga Wagga is don't forget about Africa. Africa is um, not undergoing what's called a demographic transition. In other words, a, a demographic transition is when you move um, from death control to birth control. So, in other words, that um, you have numbers of people dying are broadly in sync with the number of people who get born. If you can introduce death control, in other words, keep people keep people alive for longer, then the population will start to increase. And at that point, you then of course encourage birth control, so as to put you back into sync. That's not working in Africa. Africa is getting people to live longer, but they're not having birth control. So I think that um, the African population has grown 11 times since 1914, much, much larger than the Asian population, which only grew four times. So Africa is the place of major population growth. Its population by the year 2050 will be 2.4 billion. And by the year 2100, one-third of the world's population could be African. Um, There will be more people living in Nigeria than in the United States. So you've got this massive population, and Australia is unique. We are the only country that does dry land farming. You know, I've just made the comment about growing food on on cardboard. Um, So we actually could sell um, agricultural services to Africa to help their redevelopment. They're not short of water. The continent floats on the stuff. The problem is really knowing how to make the most of water. Well, it's agronomy. You know, agronomy could set up easily uh, in Africa, I think, and Africa, therefore, could be a, a major market for um, Australian produce uh, and Australian services, the agronomy services. And um, in the fullness of time, we will then have African tourists coming out here to look at the Harbour Bridge, etc.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda, where we examine current happenings in foreign politics and culture and this week we are discussing the impacts of the war in Ukraine on global food supplies. We touched earlier, Keith, on whether there are lessons to be learned from this about how we as a globe trade food. What What pivots need to be made by countries and Australia in this regard?
1: Well, I think we need to give far more attention to the whole issue of food security. It's a subject on which I've been speaking for many years, um, just the way that we behave here in Sydney. If you look at the urban sprawl in Sydney, we are building Mac mansions on good farming land. All those little vegetable gardens that we used to have are now under those Mac mansions that we're building. So we're actually losing good arable soil. So something as basic as that within our own area, virtually walking distance where we are with this studio. So I think we've got to pay far more attention to the issue of food security and also, of course, um, to recognise that we have problems with the global supply chain. We have, in Australia's case, we've put too many eggs in our China basket and we're paying the price for that now. I think that we ought to be trading on the basis of trust and not cost. The bean counters have moved in on economics and they've encouraged us always to go for the cheapest possible option, but that may not be the safest one in the long term. My favourite example of that is within walking distance of the studio, which is Sydney Harbour Bridge. So when the Harbour Bridge was built, it was built to include lots of redundancy. In other words, that the Harbour Bridge has more bolts than it really needs, uh, better quality metal probably than it needs, can certainly carry more cars than it currently does and it'll last longer than most of the buildings on either side of the harbour. That was the notion of redundancy. Now what we do is to go for just-in-time thinking, and we cut everything down to this margin. The term is we want to remove fat from the system. But the problem is if you keep on removing fat from the system, you make yourself very vulnerable because the system is unstable. And I think that's what we're learning from this current COVID crisis that we um, Instead of just in time thinking, it should be just in case thinking. So just in time means that you don't hold supplies on your shelves. Uh, You just order stuff as you need it because with the global supply chain, you'll always be able to get it immediately. You don't need to keep it in the back room until the customer wants it. We move from that to having stuff immediately available, which you can immediately requisition and it'll be delivered um, overnight, et cetera. Well, the problem with that is that supply chains get disrupted. We've seen that now with COVID. And we really ought to move from just in time to just in case. We need to be far more cautious and we need to put more fat back into how we calculate things. In Australia's case, that means paying a lot more attention to what we do in the agricultural sector.
0: Well, I wanted to touch on that as well. You said in your speech at Wagga Wagga uh, that farming is the most important job in the world. Can you expand on that belief?
1: You know, this is just a very basic comment that, that I made. Perhaps it's not being made often enough. So the global food system accounts for about 10% of the global economic output, and it employs one to half billion people. It is still the world's largest single employer, even though we you know, in here in Australia, our food supply is uh, produced by a small number of people. But if you look at the global system, Farming is still the world's largest single employer. Uh, Food exports have increased 600% in the last 30 years. That's an incredible success story. And I think it's been one of the key reasons for the world's economic development since 1945. Most people today are richer and healthier now than any time in world history. And 80% of the world's population now obtain some of their daily calories From food produced in another country. In other words, the food is being imported.
0: That's massive. It is massive.
1: (laughs) Well, if you go down to Woolies or Coles, just look at the amount of stuff they're including, you know, roses coming in from Kenya, for example. (laughs) This is the whole food miles issue, which is a separate issue that's involved. And um, as I say, Australia sells 65% of its farm production overseas, which makes it a leading farm exporting country we're not a big producer globally in terms of food but in terms of the export of food we are a brilliant success story uh, because we're just producing so much more than we can actually consume in this country and and we have reasonably good distribution systems etc so what I was saying in, in, in Wagga Wagga perhaps there's something which is not being said often enough the food is very important and the production of food Is very important, and the distribution of that food is also important as well. So we just take it for granted. You know, you get up in the morning, you have your breakfast cereals, whatever, bacon and egg, and you just take it for granted. You don't recognise the amount of effort that's gone in to produce the cereals or the dairy products or whatever. It's just something which you take for granted. So I'm saying that generally Australia needs to have a security for food and fibre, so that would include cotton and wool, etc., and that we need to think long-term about what we're doing. Remember, this for me, it's also tied up with oil. We're not doing enough to stockpile oil, which is what's required of us under our International Energy Agreement. And at the same time, we've got to be looking at how we can enhance the production of food. As I say, we're a global success story in the export of food, but I think there's a lot more that we could still be doing.
0: Yeah. Is this an opportunity then for Australian producers and the government to work together and say we can do much more in this sector?
1: Absolutely. This is a real growth area, I think, for for Australia. As I say, we are a success story in what we've been able to achieve um, and I think that we can do much more to boost the agricultural sector and, and to have talented people moving in. It's a very exciting sector um, because of all the developments that are taking place. Nothing is ever static. In farming, and of course now we've got all the debate about climate change and the important role that farming and farm animals play for good or ill within the whole climate change debate. We heard a lot about um, methane emissions from cattle, etc. At the conference, there's a lot going on. It's a fascinating subject. I just wish that we could get more people moving into that sector. Well,
0: he's hoping they do soon. Dr. Keith Suda, thank you for your company. See you next week. Thank you, listener.